Chapter 7 Investing isn't only for rich people. Spend the afternoon picking a simple portfolio that will make you rich. In the previous chapter, you heard about how useless investing experts are and how we can do better on our own. Now we've arrived at the promised land. This is the chapter where you will learn how to choose your own investments, pay less in fees, and get superior performance. You're going to determine your investing style by asking yourself some key questions. Do you need your money next year, or can you let it grow for a while? Are you saving up for a house? Can you withstand big day-to-day -day changes in the stock market, or do they make you queasy? Then you're going to research funds and pick the exact investments to meet your goals. This includes all your investment accounts, like your 401k and your Roth IRA. By the end of this chapter, you'll know exactly what to invest in, and more importantly, why. And you'll do it with minimal human involvement, including minimal expense. My goal is to help you pick the simplest investment to get started and to make your portfolio easy to maintain. By just doing those two things, you will be well on your way to getting rich. You'll realize that lots of people with high salaries have no savings or investments. And you'll start noticing the excuses people make to justify not investing, including, I don't have time, and stocks can go down, and I don't want to lose my money. Most people don't know the first thing about how to pick investments, but now you will. Ah, the promised land is sweet. Smith Shaw, who's 30 years old, wrote, I used the advice from IWT to set up my Schwab IRA, personal investment account, and checking account prior to starting my first job when I was 24. I'm now 30 and have over $300,000 saved between my personal investment account, 401k, and Roth IRA. A better way to invest. Automatic investing. Let's be honest. Nobody really loves managing their money. I'd rather be using my money, like taking a food tour in Tokyo or a weekend ski trip with my friends. Basically, I'm always on the lookout for ways to spend less time and get better results. Remember how I talked earlier about all those systems that I loved creating? The system for applying to 65 scholarships? The system to manage 2,000 emails a day? Well, I am very, very interested in paying less attention to my money while getting better returns. So I've taken pains to research investments that don't take lots of time to maintain, and they also pay off. This is why I urge you to combine a classic low-cost investing strategy with automation. Now, automatic investing is not some revolutionary technique that I just invented. It's a simple way of investing in low-cost funds that is recommended by Nobel laureates, billionaire investors such as Warren Buffett, and most academics. It involves spending most of your time choosing how your money will be distributed in your portfolio, then picking your investments, which surprisingly takes the least amount of time, and finally automating your regular investments so you can sit and watch TV while your money grows. Hey, we're lazy. We might as well embrace it and use it to our advantage. Now, automatic investing works for two reasons. First, lower expenses. As I discussed in Chapter 6, nothing kills your investment performance more than expensive funds that invisibly drain your returns. Investing in them is especially crazy when you can earn better returns with lower fees. Why would you pay for the privilege of losing your money? Well, with automatic investing, you invest in low-cost funds. 
which replace worthless, expensive portfolio managers, and you save tens of thousands of dollars in trading fees, taxes incurred by frenetic trading, and overall investment expenses, thereby allowing you to outperform most investors. Second, it's automatic. Automatic investing frees you from having to pay attention to the latest hot stock or micro-change in the market. You pick a simple investment plan that doesn't involve any sexy stocks or guessing whether the market's going up or down, and then you set up automatic contributions to your investment accounts. In this way, you effectively trick yourself into investing because it requires no work from you. This means you can focus on living your rich life, doing your job well, spending time with friends and family, traveling to different countries, eating at great restaurants, instead of worrying about your money. I might as well call this Zen investing for people who have real lives. And that is why I will never be a naming consultant. Too good to be true? The way I described automatic investing was basically the same as saying, puppies are cute. Nobody would ever disagree with what I just said. Automatic investing sounds perfect, but what happens when the market goes down? Well, it's not as easy to go along for the ride then. For example, I know several people who had automatic investment plans, and when the stock market incurred huge losses in late 2008, guess what they did? They canceled their investments and took their money out of the market. That was a huge mistake. The test of a real automatic investor is not when things are going up, but when they are going down. For example, in October 2018, the stock market dropped and one of my investment accounts decreased by more than $100,000. That's in one month. I did what I always do. I kept investing automatically every single month. It takes strength to know that when the stock market goes down, you're still going to keep buying. In fact, you're basically getting shares on sale. And if you're investing for the long term, the best time to make money is when everyone else is getting out of the market. Bottom line, automatic investing may not seem as sexy as trading in hedge funds and biotech stocks, but it works a lot better. Again, would you rather be sexy or rich? Joe Fra, 34 years old, wrote, I started investing about three years ago after reading a bunch of finance books, including yours. I started pretty late and was almost 31, but I feel pretty good about my progress. I'm maxing out my Roth, where I'm investing more aggressively, and also putting 15% in my 401k with Vanguard, all index funds. I'm the first in my family to do this, so it took a while to figure out, but now it's on autopilot, so it feels great. Do you believe everything your friends tell you? Question, my friends tell me that investing is too risky and that I could lose all my money. Is that true? Answer, that's an instinctive, emotional reaction, not a well-reasoned, logical response. Now, I can understand being nervous about investing, especially when you read press articles that use phrases like market correction and stock drops 10% overnight. With headlines like that, it's easy to practice the DNA style of investing, which is the do-nothing approach. It's actually really unfortunate that the people who are afraid of investing in the market right now are usually the very same people who buy when prices are soaring. As Warren Buffett has said, investors should be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. For you, though, it's different. 
You understand how investing works, so you can put a long-term perspective into practice. Now, yes, in theory, it's possible for you to lose all your money. But if you've bought different investments to create a balanced or diversified portfolio, you won't. You'll notice that your friends are concerned with the downside. Oh my God, you could lose everything. How will you have time to learn how to invest? There's so many sharks out there trying to take your money. Well, here's a question for them. What about the downsides of the money they're losing every day by not investing? Do this. Ask your friends what the average return of the S&P 500 has been for the past 70 years. How much money would they have had if they invested $10,000 today and didn't touch it for 10 years or 50 years? They won't know because they don't even know the basic return rate to assume, which is 8%. When people say investing is too risky, it's because they don't know what they don't know. The Magic of Financial Independence I remember going on TV to talk about I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Before the camera started, the anchor leaned over to me and congratulated me on my book. Great job, he said. So do you have to work anymore? I sat back and realized I'd never thought about that. And I said to him, no, I don't have to work anymore. That was a powerful moment. And it's an example of the crossover point where your investments earn enough for you to fund your expenses automatically. Imagine one day you woke up and you had enough money in your accounts to never work again. In other words, your investments were generating so much money that the money you already have was actually producing more money than your salary. That's the crossover point, first described by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez in their book, Your Money or Your Life. It's an incredibly influential idea in personal finance. Money makes money, and at a certain point, your money is generating so much new money that all of your expenses are covered. This is also known as being financially independent, or FI. What can you do once you hit the crossover point? Well, at a minimum, you can do nothing. You can wake up, spend three hours at brunch, go work out, see friends, practice your hobby. You can choose to work or not. After all, you could spend the rest of your life spending down your investments. Many call this retiring early, or RE. Together, they're financial independence plus retiring early. That's FI plus RE, or FIRE. There's lean FIRE, which is people who've decided they can live on a lean amount of money, often $30,000 to $50,000 a year in perpetuity. They reject materialism and embrace simplicity, often in an extreme way. There's also fat FIRE, for people who want to live an extravagant life at the highest levels of spending. Ever wonder how celebrities can spend $250,000 on a single party? Well, that's because their money is earning so much money that they actually have to work to spend it all. For example, in 2018, Oprah Winfrey bought a house for $8 million. Wow, that seems outrageously expensive, right? Well, here's the twist. Because her net worth at the time was over $4 billion, if that money was even conservatively invested and returned 4%, her investments alone, not even counting her salary, would generate $160 million that year, effectively making that house free to her. Now apply that to your life. Most people won't get to $125 million in net worth. But what if you had $1 million, $2 million? What about $5 million? Run the numbers, assuming an 8% return, to see how much that would generate for you.
It's eye-opening. Now, when you hit the point of financial independence, you're being paid to live because of decisions you made years ago. It's like an Indian kid studying 10 hours a day to nail the SATs, then getting amazing jobs and opportunities decades later. Little Raj doesn't remember the hours he spent studying. He just loves the results of that hard work, even 25 years later. Again, a summary of the terms. FI, that's financial independence, where you've earned enough that your investments will pay for your life in perpetuity. RE is retiring early, often in your 30s or 40s. FIRE is financial independence plus retiring early. Think of someone who retires in their 30s and will technically never have to work again because their investments cover their annual living expenses every year, forever. There's lean fire, people who want to live a lean life, often on approximately $30,000 a year. They're likely doing fun things like going for walks in the park and bird watching. And fat fire, people who want to be financially independent and retire early, but live an extravagant lifestyle. Think of flying first class and staying at the Four Seasons, or putting three kids through private school. Now, achieving fire isn't easy. And typically, most people dismiss it out of hand. Well, I'm too young to think about that. And then, funny enough, just a few years later, oh, it's too late for me to start. Funny how that changes so fast, isn't it? Or the final flourish of rationalization. I'd rather spend my money now than nickel and dime myself for the next 30 years. The real answer, of course, is that you can choose whether the crossover point is part of your rich life. And if you want to reach it, you can choose how to achieve it. Many people in the financial independence community focus on saving a huge portion of their salary. Forget about the usual 10% or 20% savings rates, they say. How about 70%? For example, if your household income is $80,000 and your monthly expenses are $6,000, you could reach your crossover point in 38 years by following the usual advice of saving and investing 10%. Or you could reach it a lot faster. How? Well, I'm going to show you with some real numbers. Option one, you could cut your monthly expenses down to $3,000. Lots of people find it difficult to imagine living on $36,000. Or put it another way, to imagine cutting your spending in half. But there are countless online examples of lean fire followers actually doing it. Following this strategy, you could reach your crossover point in just over 12 years. Now keep in mind the trade-off here. 12 years is extremely fast for a crossover point, but you've targeted ongoing spending of just $36,000 per year. Option two, you could raise your income. Let's say that you follow the advice on my website, IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com, to negotiate your salary and you get a 30% raise. If you take all that extra money and invest it, you'd hit your crossover point in 22 years. Again, notice that this takes longer than option one, a lot longer, but in this example, you've targeted spending $72,000 per year. Option three, you could do a combination of both. If you increased your income by 30% and cut your spending by 30%, you'd hit your crossover point in just nine years. Here, you see an extremely short time to your crossover point combined with relatively high spending. This really shows you the power of targeting your income and your expenses. Most people never think about their earnings and spending in this way. And as a result, they do the same thing as most other people. 
they save a tiny amount each year, they end up working for decades, and then they find themselves ranting about taxes on Twitter without knowing what the hell they're talking about. With this chapter alone, you now realize that if you want to, you can dramatically change the way you approach your working years. Earn more, spend less, or earn more and spend more. You decide on your rich life. By the way, I have to tell you that I have mixed feelings about FIRE. On one hand, I love any strategy that helps people get more conscious about spending and saving. FIRE is an antidote to Americans' tepid savings rate. It absolutely obliterates the usual 10% standard by showing you that saving 25% or 40% or even 70% of your income is possible if you get crystal clear about your goals. On the other hand, many FIRE adherents exhibit classic signs of stress, anxiety, and even depression, and a lot of them think that hitting some mythical number in their spreadsheets will solve their unhappiness. It won't. You can see this by going to the Financial Independence subreddit, where you'll find thousands of people who are obsessed with quitting their jobs as quickly as possible so they can retire. As one Redditor wrote, I look back at the past few years of my life and at my bank account, and I would gladly give away a hefty chunk of it and work longer if it meant I could have experienced more of the world and found more passions, especially with someone I had loved so much. I built my savings, but I never built my life. I have no problem setting an aggressive financial goal. In fact, I love it. I have no problem with people who have different financial goals than mine. But when people use words like miserable, rat race, and anxiety, that's a red flag. My suggestion here, remember that life is lived outside the spreadsheet. Be as aggressive as you want with your goals. In fact, dream bigger than you ever thought. But remember that money is just a small part of a rich life. David Chambers, who's 35 years old, wrote, I was afraid to get started with investing before reading the IWT book. I had a 401k, but wasn't maxing it out, didn't have an IRA, and had no investments. My parents drilled scarcity mindsets into me growing up and were extremely risk-averse. I finally set up a Roth IRA, and I've maxed it out every year. Last year, I maxed out my 401k for the first time, and I'm on track to do it again this year. I set up a personal investment account and automatically add to it every month. I did all of these things, without affecting my current lifestyle and actually living a little more extravagantly. Through the investment accounts, I've got $100,000 growing for retirement and $8,000 in the personal investment account. More convenience or more control? You choose. I want investing to be as painless as possible for you, so here's what I'm going to do. I'll give you an easy version and a more advanced version. If you're the kind of person who wants your money to grow with the least possible effort and you just don't care about all the theory, you can skip ahead to a section called Target Date Funds, Investing the Easy Way. There you'll find a step-by-step -step guide for picking a single investment, a target date fund, and you'll get started investing in just a few hours. But if you're a type A nerd like me who wants to learn how it all works and maybe even customize your portfolio for more control, then keep listening. I'll walk you through the building blocks of a portfolio and I'll help you construct one that's both aggressive and balanced. Investing is not about picking stocks. Really, it's not. 
Ask your friends what they think investing means, and I bet you they'll say picking stocks. Guys, you cannot reliably pick stocks that will outperform the markets over the long term. It's way too easy to make mistakes, such as being overconfident about choices or panicking when your investments drop even a little. As we heard in Chapter 6, even experts can't guess what will happen to the stock market. But because they've heard it repeatedly from the many investment blogs and YouTube videos, people think investing is about picking stocks and that anyone can be successful. Well, they can't. I hate to say it, but not everyone is a winner. In fact, most of these so-called financial experts are failures. Anyway, a little-known fact is that the major predictor of your portfolio's volatility doesn't stem from the individual stocks you pick, as most people think, but instead from your mix of stocks and bonds. In 1986, researchers Gary Brinson, Randolph Hood, and Gilbert B. Bauer published a study in Financial Analyst Journal that rocked the financial world. They demonstrated that more than 90% of your portfolio's volatility is a result of your asset allocation. I know, asset allocation sounds like some BS phrase, like mission statement or strategic alliance, but it's not. Asset allocation is your plan for investing. It's the way you distribute your investments in your portfolio between stocks, bonds, and cash. In other words, by diversifying your investments across different asset classes, like stocks and bonds, or better yet, stock funds and bond funds, you can control the risk in your portfolio and therefore control how much money you'll lose on average due to volatility. It turns out that the way you allocate your portfolio, whether it's 100% stocks or 90% stocks and 10% bonds, makes a profound difference on your returns. Later, other researchers tried to measure how closely volatility and returns were correlated, but the answer ends up being pretty complicated. Suffice it to say that asset allocation is the most significant part of your portfolio that you can control. Think about that remarkable fact. Your investment plan is more important than your actual investments. Take, for example, this book. If we apply the same principle here, it means that the way I organize this book, my table of contents, is more important than any given word in it. That actually makes intuitive sense, right? Well, the same is true of investing. If you allocate your money properly, for example, not all in one stock, but spread out across different types of funds, you won't have to worry about a single stock possibly cutting your portfolio's value in half. In fact, by diversifying your investments, you'll make more money as an individual investor. To know how to allocate your assets, you have to know the basic options you have for investing, which is where we're headed next. William Bernstein, the author of The Four Pillars of Investing, Lessons for Building a Winning Portfolio, wrote... Since you cannot successfully time the market or select individual stocks, asset allocation should be the major focus of your investment strategy. Because it is the only factor affecting your investment risk and return that you can control. The Building Blocks of Investing If you're not interested in the mechanics of investing and you want to skip ahead to learn what the simplest investment choice is, go ahead and skip ahead to the section on target date funds. But if you want to know more about what's going on under the hood, stick with me. I want to describe to you something called the pyramid of investing. It represents all the possible choices for different investments. At the bottom of this pyramid is the most basic level, 
where you can invest in stocks or bonds or just hold your money in cash. Now, I'm oversimplifying because there are tons of different kinds of stocks and bonds, but you get the idea. Above them are index funds and mutual funds. And finally, at the top of the pyramid are target date funds. Let's look at each category of investment, also known as asset classes, to see what lies beneath. Stocks. When you buy stocks, you buy shares of a company. If the company does well, you expect your stock to do well. When people talk about the market, they're usually referring to an index of stocks, like the Dow Jones, which is 30 large cap stocks, or the S&P 500. That's 500 companies with large market capitalization. Investment nerds might be wondering, what's the difference between the indexes? Well, there are lots of differences, but in general, they're not really important to your personal finances. Each index is like a college. There are committees that determine the criteria for allowing companies on their index, and they may change those criteria over time. Overall, stocks as a category provide excellent returns. As we know, on average, the stock market returns about 8% per year. In fact, you can do significantly better than the market if you pick a winning stock, or significantly worse if you pick a loser. Although stocks as a whole provide generally excellent returns over time, individual stocks are less clear. If you invest all your money in one stock, for example, you might make a huge return, but it's also possible the company could tank and you could lose it all. Stocks have been a good way to earn significant returns over the long term, but I discourage you from picking individual stocks because it's really, really difficult to choose winning ones on your own. The tricky thing about stocks is you never know what'll happen. For example, in 2018, Snapchat announced a redesign of their app interface. The stock plunged 9.5% in one day. And of course, the opposite can happen if a company announces good news. In Chapter 6, I demonstrated that even professionals whose livelihoods depend on it cannot predict stock returns. And remember, these are highly trained analysts who can read stock prospectuses like I can read an Indian restaurant menu, flawlessly. If these experts, who devour annual reports and understand complicated balance sheets can't beat the market, what chance do you have of picking stocks that'll go up? Well, the answer is you have very little chance. That's why individual investors like you and me should not invest in individual stocks. Instead, we'll choose funds, which are collections of stocks, and sometimes for diversification, bonds. They'll let you reduce your risk and create a well-balanced portfolio that will let you sleep well at night. But more on that later. Bonds. Bonds are essentially IOUs from companies or the government. Technically, bonds are longer-term investments of 10-plus years, whereas certificates of deposit, or CDs, involve lending money to a bank. Because they're pretty similar, let's just call them both bonds to simplify things. If you buy a one-year bond, it's the same as if the bank says, hey, if you lend us $100, I'll give you back $103 a year from now. The advantages of bonds are that you can choose the term or length of time that you want the loan to last. For example, two years, five years, 10 years, and so on. And you know exactly how much you'll get when they mature or pay out. Also, bonds, especially government bonds, are generally stable and let you decrease the risk in your portfolio. See, the only way you'd lose money on a government bond is if the government defaulted on its loans. And it doesn't do that. If it runs low on money, it just prints more of it. Now that is gangster. 
Because bonds are such a safe, low-risk investment, the return, even on a highly rated bond, is much lower than it would be on an excellent stock. Investing in bonds also renders your money illiquid, meaning it's locked away and inaccessible for a set period of time. Technically, you can withdraw early, but you'll face severe penalties, so it's a bad idea. With these qualities, what kind of person would invest in bonds? Any ideas? Let's see here. Extremely stable, essentially guaranteed rate of return, but relatively small returns. Who do you think would do it? Well, the answer is, in general, rich people and old people like bonds. Old people like them because they want to know exactly how much money they're getting next month for their medication or whatever it is they need. Also, some of these grannies and grandpas can't withstand the volatility of the stock market because they don't have very much other income to support themselves or they have very little time left on this earth to recover from any downturns. Now, this has become very morbid, but hey, this is one category of people who use bonds. Rich people, on the other hand, tend to become more conservative because they have so much money. Put it this way, when you have $10,000, you want to invest aggressively to grow it because you want to make more money. But when you have $10 million, your goals switch from aggressive growth to something called preservation of capital. Chuck Jaffe once wrote a CBS Market Watch column where he shared this old story about Groucho Marx, the famous comedian and avid investor. One trader said, Hey, Groucho, where do you invest your money? He said, I keep my money in treasury bonds. And they said, that doesn't make you much money. He replied, they do if you have enough of them. <laughs> if you have a lot of money, you will accept lower investment returns in exchange for security and safety. So a guaranteed bond at 3% or 4% is attractive to a wealthy person. After all, 3% of 10 million is still a lot. Cash. In investing terms, cash is money that's sitting on the sidelines, uninvested and earning only a little bit in interest from money market accounts, which are basically high-interest savings accounts. Traditionally, cash has been the third part of a portfolio alongside stocks and bonds. You want to have totally liquid cash on hands for emergencies and as a hedge if the market tanks. Of course, you pay a price for this security. Cash is the safest part of your portfolio, but it also offers the lowest reward. In fact, you actually lose money by holding cash once you factor inflation in. That's why I say it's traditionally been part of a portfolio. As long as you're contributing towards your savings goals, as I described in Chapter 5, and you have enough to cover emergencies, and ideally more, you're fine. You don't have to worry about having cash in your investment account. Let's keep this simple. Asset allocation, the critical factor that most investors miss. If you bought all different kinds of stocks or stock funds, you'd be diversified, but still only within stocks. That's like being the hottest person in Friendship, Wisconsin. It's nice, but we're talking about modest competition here. By the way, Friendship is actually a real place. My friend grew up there, and he told me what he and his buddies used to use as a gang sign. Two hands clasping in Friendship. It's important to diversify within stocks, but it's even more important to allocate across the different asset classes, like stocks and bonds. Investing in only one category is dangerous over the long term. And this is where the all-important concept of asset allocation comes into play. Here's a good little mnemonic trick to remember this. Diversification is D for going deep on a category. 
For example, buying different types of stocks like large cap, small cap, international, and so on. And asset allocation is A for going across all categories. For example, stocks and bonds. This is the kind of fun stuff that personal finance people come up with on their time off. Cool, right? In determining where to allocate your assets, one of the most important considerations is what returns each category offers. Of course, based on the different types of investments you make, you can expect different returns. For example, higher risk generally equals higher potential for reward. Let me give you an example. NYU professor Demoterin analyzed 90 years of investment returns, and his numbers show us the returns of different categories. Let's start with stocks. Over 90 years, in general, these higher-risk investments returned 11.5%. Bonds, which are lower-risk, returned approximately 5.2%. And cash, which is ultra-low-risk, returned 3.4%. So, at first glance, it seems clear that stocks return the most. So their natural tendency is to say, let's put all our money there. But not so fast. Remember, higher reward entails higher risk. So if you're loaded up on stocks and your portfolio dips 35% next year, all of a sudden, you're financially immobile, you're only eating Triscuits, and you're waiting to see if your money climbs back up or you die first. Your asset allocation is actually one of the most important decisions you will make in life. It's a decision that could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to you, or for some of you, millions. But in a peculiar quirk of human nature, we're more likely to talk about a new restaurant or some TV show rather than our asset allocation. In fact, how many of us have never even heard the phrase asset allocation before? That's because the financial media thinks it's too complicated for us to understand. So they resort to words like safety and growth. In reality, asset allocation is one of the only things that matters. And I think you're smart enough to learn it. Asset allocation has real-world consequences. For example, many of us have heard of 50- and 60-year-olds who saw catastrophic drops in their portfolios during the last recession. Well, the truth is, their assets were not properly allocated. They never should have invested in all equities, nor should they have sold during the downturn. In fact, had they stayed in the market, they would have been handsomely rewarded over time. Age and risk tolerance matter. If you're 25 years old and you have dozens and dozens of years to grow your money, a portfolio made of mostly stock-based funds probably makes sense. But if you're older, retirement is coming up sooner and you'll want to tamp down your risk. Even if the market tanks, you have control over your asset allocation. If you're older, especially if you're in your 60s or older, a sizable portion of your portfolio should be in stable bonds. Bonds act as a counterweight to stocks, generally rising when stocks fall and reducing the overall risk of your portfolio. By investing part of your money in bonds, you reduce some of your overall risk. Sure, if that biotech stock went up 200%, you'd wish your bond money was all in that stock. But if the stock went down, you'll be glad your bonds were there as a buffer against losing everything. Although it may seem counterintuitive, your portfolio will actually have better overall performance if you add bonds to the mix. Because bonds will generally perform better when stocks fall, Bonds lower your risk a lot while limiting your returns only a little. Now, I know it's common to say, but Ramit, I'm young. I want to invest aggressively. I don't need bonds. Well, I agree. Bonds aren't really for young people in their 20s. 
If you're in your 20s or early 30s and you don't necessarily need to reduce your risk, you can simply invest in all stock funds and let time mitigate any risk. But in your 30s and older, you'll want to begin balancing your portfolio with bonds to reduce risk. And what if stocks as a whole don't perform well for a long time? Well, that's when you need to own bonds to offset the bad times. Another interesting scenario calls for lower risk via bonds. That is, if you've accumulated a very large portfolio, then you have a very different risk profile. In one famous example, personal finance expert Susie Orman was asked about her net worth in an interview. She replied, One journalist estimated my liquid net worth at $25 million. That's pretty close. My houses are worth another $7 million. The journalist then asked where she puts her money. With the exception of a million dollars in the stock market, she said, the rest was in bonds. The personal finance world was horrified. All that money in bonds? But guess what? She has approximately 25 million good reasons that other people don't. As a financial advisor once told me, once you've won the game, there's no reason to take unnecessary risk. Stocks and bonds have many flavors. Let me walk you through some different types of stocks and bonds in case you're interested in wondering all the different options that you possibly have. Large cap stocks. These are big companies with a market capitalization over 10 billion. Mid cap stocks. These are mid-sized companies with a market cap between 1 billion and 5 billion. Small cap stocks. Smaller companies with a market cap of less than 1 billion. International investments. These are stocks from companies in other countries, including emerging markets like China and India, and developed markets like the UK and Germany. Americans may sometimes buy these directly, but they may have to buy them through funds. Growth stocks. These are stocks whose value may grow higher than other stocks or even the market as a whole. Value stocks. These are stocks that seem bargain price. In other words, they seem cheaper than they should be. Now let's talk about bonds. Government bonds are an ultra-safe investment that's backed by the government. In exchange for their low risk, government bonds tend to return less than stocks. Corporate bonds are bonds issued by corporations. These tend to be riskier than government bonds, but safer than stocks. Short-term bonds are bonds with terms of usually less than three years. Long-term bonds tend to mature in 10 or more years and accordingly offer higher yields than shorter-term bonds. Municipal bonds, also known as munis, these are bonds offered by local governments. And inflation-protected bonds are treasury inflation-protected securities, or TIPS. These are ultra-safe investments that protect against inflation. The importance of being diversified. Now that we know the basics of the asset classes, stocks, bonds, and cash, which are at the bottom of the pyramid, Let's explore the different choices within each asset class. Basically, there are many types of stocks, and we need to own a little of all of them. Same with bonds. This is called diversifying, and it essentially means digging into each asset class, stocks and bonds, and investing in all their subcategories. As I discussed, the broad category of stocks actually includes lots of different kinds of stocks, like large company stocks, large cap, mid-cap stocks, small-cap stocks, and international stocks. To add yet another wrinkle, none of them performs consistently. 
In the same year, small cap stocks might gain huge percentages, but international stocks might tank. And this performance can vary from year to year. Similarly, different types of bonds offer different benefits, including different rates of return and tax advantages. In his 2012 book, Skating Where the Puck Was, William Bernstein says to resign yourself to the fact that diversifying yourself among risky assets provides scant shelter from bad days or bad years, but that it does help protect against bad decades and generations, which can be far more destructive to wealth. Diversification is about safety in the long term. The fact that performance varies so much in each asset class means two things. First, if you're trying to make a quick buck off investing, you'll usually lose money because you have no idea what'll happen in the near-term future. Anyone who tells you they do is a fool or a commission-based salesman. Second, you should own different categories of stocks and maybe bonds to balance out your portfolio. You don't want to own only U.S. small-cap stocks, for example, or funds that own only U.S. small-cap stocks. If they didn't perform well for 10 years, that would really suck. If, however, you own small-cap stocks, plus large-cap stocks, plus international stocks, and more, you're effectively insured against any one area dragging you down. So if you were to invest in stocks, you'd want to diversify, buying all different types of stocks or stock funds to have a balanced portfolio. These allocations are just general rules of thumb. Some people prefer to have 100% in stocks until they're in their 30s or 40s. Others are more conservative and want some money in bonds. But the big takeaway here is that if we're in our 20s and 30s, we can afford to be aggressive about investing in stocks and stock funds, even if they drop temporarily, because time is on our side. And honestly, if you're nervous about investing and just starting out, your biggest danger isn't having a portfolio that's too risky. It's being lazy and overwhelmed and not doing anything at all. That's why it's important to understand the basics, but not get too wrapped up in all the variables and choices. Over time, you can manage your asset allocation to reduce risk and get a fairly predictable return on investments. 30 years from now, you're going to need to invest very differently than you do today. That's just natural. You invest much more aggressively in your 30s than in your 60s when you find yourself growing older and telling long-winded stories about how you trudge through three miles of snow each way to get to school each morning. The real work in investing comes with creating an investment plan that's appropriate for your age and comfort levels with risk. All this sounds completely reasonable, right? I invest aggressively when I'm younger, and as I get older, I get more conservative. There's just one problem. How the hell are you supposed to do this? What specific investment should you choose? Should you invest in individual stocks? No. Most people just stop here, thinking that investing is only about stocks. Not surprisingly, when they try to think more deeply about this, they get confused and delay the decision to invest until some day in the future. Do not let this happen to you. Let's go up the pyramid of investing options to cover another key to investing. Funds. What a granny needs. Typical asset allocations by age. Here's what typical asset allocations might look like as investors get older. Remember, asset allocation is the mix of different investments in your portfolio. These figures are taken from Vanguard's target date funds. At 35 years old, 
a typical asset allocation might look like 90% stocks and 10% bonds. At 45 years old, same thing, 90% stocks, 10% bonds. At 55 years old, 69% stocks and 31% bonds. You can see that that portfolio gets more conservative. And finally, at 65 years old, 53% stocks and 47% bonds, even more conservative. Mutual funds, not bad, pretty convenient, but often expensive and unreliable. The financial industry isn't stupid. These people are ingenious at creating products to meet investor needs or what the industry wants people to need. In 1924, mutual funds, which are just baskets filled with different types of investments, usually stocks, were invented. Instead of requiring investors to perform the Herculean task of picking individual stocks themselves, mutual funds allowed average investors to simply choose different types of funds that would suit them. For example, there are large cap, mid cap, and small cap stock mutual funds, but also mutual funds that focus on biotech, communication, and even European and Asian stocks. Mutual funds are extremely popular because they allow you to pick one fund that contains different stocks and not worry about putting too many eggs in one basket or monitoring prospectuses or keeping up with industry news. The funds provide instant diversification because they hold many different stocks. Now, most people's first encounter with mutual funds is through their 401k, where they choose from a bewildering array of options. You buy shares of the fund and the fund's manager picks the stocks he or she thinks will yield the best return. Mutual funds are incredibly useful financial tools. Over the past 85 years, they've proven to be very popular and extremely profitable. Compared with other investments, they've been a steady cash cow for Wall Street. That's because in exchange for active management, which is having an expert choose a fund's stocks, the financial companies charge big fat fees, also known as expense ratios. These fees eat a hole in your return. For what? For nothing. You don't need to pay that. Sure, there are some low-fee fund options out there, but most mutual funds have high expense ratios. Now, I don't fault the financial companies for selling mutual funds. They got average Americans to invest, and even after fees, mutual funds are an excellent investment choice compared with doing nothing. But guess what? Things have changed. As we heard in Chapter 6, there are now better options for investing, lower-cost, better-performing index funds. Advantages of a mutual fund. Hands-off approach means an expert money manager makes investment decisions for you. Mutual funds hold many varied stocks, so if one company tanks, your fund doesn't go down with it. Disadvantages. Annual fees can equal tens of thousands of dollars or more over the lifetime of an investment by using expense ratios, front-end loads, and back-end loads. Those are all worthless sales charges that add nothing to your returns. Also, if you invest in two mutual funds, they might overlap in investments, meaning you're not really as diversified as you think. Worst of all, you're paying an expert to manage your money, and 75% of them don't even beat the market. In short, mutual funds are prevalent because of their convenience, but because these actively managed mutual funds are expensive, they're not the best investment anymore. Active management can't compete with passive management, which takes us to index funds. 
the more attractive cousin of mutual funds. Anand Trivedi, who's 35 years old, wrote, I put my first chunk of money in an actively managed fund about a year before I read your book and really began to understand mutual funds. It was a long-term investment, so it certainly made money, but when compared to a benchmark index fund, I missed out on some growth. I finally found myself at a point where paying capital gains tax made sense, so I've now been able to roll it into lower-cost investments. Thanks, Ramit, for showing us the light. Index Funds the attractive cousin in an otherwise unattractive family. In 1975, John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, introduced the world's first index fund. These simple funds buy stocks and match the market versus the traditional mutual fund, which employs an expensive staff of experts who try to predict which stocks will perform well, they trade frequently, incurring taxes in the process, and charging you fees. In short, they charge you to lose. Index funds set a much lower bar. No experts, no attempt to beat the market, just a computer that automatically attempts to match the index and keep costs low for you. Index funds are the financial equivalent of if you can't beat them, join them. And they do so while also being low cost and tax efficient and requiring hardly any maintenance at all. In other words, index funds are simply collections of stocks that computers manage in an effort to match the index of the market. There are index funds for the S&P 500, for Asia-Pacific funds, for real estate funds, and for anything else you can imagine. Just like mutual funds, they have ticker symbols, such as VFINX. Bogle argued that index funds would offer better performance to individual investors. Active mutual fund managers could not typically beat the market yet they charged investors unnecessary fees. There's a funny effect called illusory superiority, which refers to how we all think we're better than other people, especially Americans. For example, in one study, 93% of respondents rated themselves in the top 50% of driver skills, an obviously impossible number. We believe that we have a better memory and that we're kinder and more popular and more unbiased than others. It feels good to believe it, Yet psychology has shown us that we are flawed. Once you understand this, Wall Street makes a lot more sense. Every mutual fund manager believes he can beat the market. To accomplish this, managers use fancy analysis and data, and they trade frequently. Ironically, this results in lots of taxes and trading fees, which, when combined with expense ratios, makes it virtually impossible for the average fund investor to beat or even match the market over time. Bogle opted to discard the old model of mutual funds and introduce index funds. Today, index funds are an easy, efficient way to make a significant amount of money. Note, however, that index funds simply match the market. If you own all equities in your 20s and 30s and the stock market drops, like it has from time to time, and it will from time to time, your investments will drop. Expect it it's normal for your investments to go up and down. High expense ratios cost you more than you think. Let's talk about the difference between how much your fees will cost you as your portfolio grows. Let's say you're starting out and after a year or two of investing, you have $5,000 in your portfolio. If you're paying for a low-cost index fund with annual expenses of 0.14%, 
you're paying about $7 in annual expenses. Now, if you're paying the annual expenses of an actively managed mutual fund, which charges 1%, you're paying 50 bucks. Now, with $5,000 in your portfolio, $7 versus $50, not that big of a deal. But let's fast forward until later in life. Now you have a million dollars in your portfolio. If you are paying for an index fund with 0.14% expenses, your annual expenses will be $1,400. What if you're paying for a 1% fee for an actively managed mutual fund? Guess how much that costs you? That's $10,000. High expense ratios cost you way more than you think. Over the long term, the stock market has always gone up. As a bonus for using index funds, you'll anger your friends in finance because you'll be throwing up the middle finger to the entire industry and you'll keep their fat fees for yourself. Wall Street is terrified of index funds and tries to keep them under wraps by marketing mutual funds and nonsense like five-star funds. Advantages. Extremely low cost, easy to maintain, and tax-efficient. Disadvantages. When you're investing in index funds, you typically have to invest in multiple funds to create a comprehensive asset allocation. Although owning one is better than doing nothing. If you do purchase multiple index funds, you'll have to rebalance or adjust your investments to maintain your target asset allocation. And you'll have to do this regularly, about once every 12 to 18 months. Also, each fund typically requires a minimum investment though this is often waived with automatic monthly investments. Okay, so here's what we know. Index funds are clearly far superior to buying either individual stocks and bonds or mutual funds. With their low fees, they're a great choice if you want to create and control the exact makeup of your portfolio. But what if you're one of those people who knows you'll never get around to doing the necessary research to figure out an appropriate asset allocation? Let's be honest, most people do not want to construct a diversified portfolio, and they certainly don't want to rebalance and monitor their funds, even if it's just once a year. If you fall into this group, which is frankly 99.999% of people, there's an option at the very top of the investment pyramid. It's an investment option that I love, and it's one that is drop-dead easy. It's called Target Date Funds. Target date funds, investing the easy way. Whether you're just arriving here directly from earlier in this chapter, or you've listened all the way through the basics of investing and decided, hey, after all, I do want to take the easy way out, target date funds are the easiest investment choice you'll ever need to make. Target date funds are my favorite investment of all because they embody the 85% solution. Not exactly perfect, but easy enough for anyone to get started and they work just fine. Target date funds are simple funds that automatically diversify your investments for you based on when you plan to retire. Let's assume through the rest of this book that you will retire at 65. Instead of you having to rebalance stocks and bonds, target date funds do it for you. If more Americans owned target date funds, for example, during the last recession, far fewer retirees would have seen precipitous drops in their retirement accounts. Why? Because the target date funds would have automatically changed their portfolio to a more conservative asset allocation as they approach their golden years. Target date funds are actually fund of funds 
or collections made up of other funds, which offer automatic diversification. For example, a target date fund might include large cap, mid cap, small cap, and international funds. And those funds, in turn, will hold stocks for each of those areas. In other words, your target date fund will own many funds, all of which own stocks and bonds. It sounds complicated, but believe it or not, this actually makes things simple for you because all you have to do is own one fund and all the rest is taken care of for you. Target date funds are different from index funds, which are also low cost, but those index funds require you to own multiple different index funds if you want a full comprehensive asset allocation. Multiple funds mean that you have to rebalance your funds regularly, usually every 12 to 18 months, which is laborious. Who really wants to sit around and reallocate money and rebalance it? What a pain. Luckily, target date funds automatically pick a blend of investments for you based on your approximate age. They start you off with aggressive investment in your 20s and then shift investments to become more conservative as you get older. And for you, well, you do no work except continuing to send money into your target date fund regularly. Now, target date funds aren't perfect for everyone because they work on one variable alone. That is when you plan to retire. If you had unlimited resources, if you had more time, more money, more discipline, you could conceivably squeeze out slightly better returns by building a custom portfolio based on your exact needs. But while we all grew up with our parents telling us we were special and different, the truth is that most of us are mostly the same. And very few of us have the resources or desire to constantly monitor our portfolios. That's why I really like target date funds. They're designed to appeal to people who are lazy. In other words, for many people, the ease of use of these funds far outweighs any minor loss of returns that might occur from taking a one-size-fits-all approach. In my opinion, if that means it'll get you investing, then the benefits of having one fund that handles all your investments makes up for any possible shortcomings. Target date funds aren't all created equal. Some of them are more expensive than others, but as a general rule, they're low-cost and tax-efficient. Best of all, they take no work beyond automatically contributing money once a month, once a quarter, or once a year. You won't have to actively invest, you won't have to actively monitor, and you won't have to actively rebalance on your own because target date funds handle all the messy work for you. I love it. One thing to note is that you'll need between $100 and $1,000 as a minimum to buy into a fund. If you don't have it, set a savings goal. And once you save the minimum needed to invest, you can open your fund and set up an automatic transfer each month. I cannot recommend target date funds enough. They're easy, low cost, and they simply work. Karen Dudek Brannon, 37 years old, wrote, The most beneficial part of the book for me was the section that explained the basics of what you really need in a retirement account and the 85% solution that helps you get your investments good enough so you're not stressing out about which type of fund to choose. I like the idea that taking action and picking some type of basic life cycle target date fund is better than getting stuck in analysis paralysis and not saving. Professionals agree, index funds are great investments. You don't have to take my word for it. Here are a few experts on the benefits of index funds. 
Warren Buffett, one of America's greatest investors, says, I believe that 98 or 99%, maybe more than 99% of people who invest should extensively diversify and not trade. That leads them to an index fund with very low costs. Mark Hulbert, former editor of Hulbert Financial Digest, wrote, When you realize how few advisors have beaten the market over the last several decades, you may acquire the discipline to do something even better, become a long-term index fund investor. And W. Scott Simon, author of Index Mutual Funds, Profiting from an Investment Revolution, writes, The media focuses on the temporarily winning active funds that score the more spectacular bullseyes, not index funds that score every year and accumulate less flashy but ultimately winning scores. Choosing and actually buying your investments. By now, you should know what you want to invest in, a target date fund or index funds. If you're even thinking about buying individual stocks because it sounds sexy or you think you can beat the market, do me a favor. Just go to your kitchen, get a big Ziploc bag, take all your money and put it in there, and just light it on fire. Why don't you just skip the middleman and cut right to it? Now, if you don't want to spend a billion years managing your money and you're satisfied with the 85% solution of investing in a convenient fund that's good enough and it'll free you up to live your life and do what you love, then go for the target date fund. If you are a hardcore personal finance geek and you're willing to spend time on your investments, you want to rebalance every single year, you want more control, then choose index funds. Whichever category you fall into, you'll want to figure out exactly what to invest in. So let's get started. A common investment option, your 401k. As we discussed in chapter three, if you get a 401k match from your employer, you need to pay into your 401k before you do any other investing. If your employer doesn't offer a 401k match, skip to the Roth IRA section. You should have already set up your 401k, so now it's time to focus on how you allocate the money that you're contributing to your 401k. By the way, if you had to pick funds when you opened your account, you can always go back in and change your allocation. Just ask your HR person for the proper form, or better yet, change it directly on the 401k website. You know how I love reducing choice to get people to take action? Well, the companies that offer 401ks take this to an extreme. They offer a few investment options for you to choose from. Usually the options are called something like aggressive investments, which is usually a fund of mostly stocks, balanced investments, this fund will contain stocks and bonds, and conservative investments, a more conservative mix of mostly bonds. If you're not sure what the different choices mean, ask your HR rep for a sheet describing the difference in funds. And I want you to pay attention to this. Stay away from money market funds, which is just another way of saying your money is sitting uninvested in cash. You want your money working for you. As a young person, I encourage you to pick the most aggressive fund that you're comfortable with. As you know, the more aggressive you are when you're younger, the more money you'll have later in life. And this is especially true for a 401k, which is an ultra long-term investment account. Depending on what company your employer uses to administer your 401k, your fund options might be a little pricey in terms of the expense ratio. As a side note, I consider anything above 0.5 or 0.75% expensive. But on balance, you're still getting huge tax advantages and hopefully employer match benefits. So it's worth it to invest in these funds, 
even if they aren't perfect. Investing using your Roth IRA After your 401k match, the next best place to invest is in your Roth IRA. I want to remind you again that in addition to accruing earnings tax-free, one of the primary benefits of Roth IRAs is the flexibility of choosing any fund you want. When you send money to your Roth IRA account, it just sits there. You're going to need to invest the money to start making good returns. Now, the easiest investment is a target date fund. You can just buy it, set up automatic monthly contributions, and then forget about it. Choosing a target date fund for your Roth IRA. Let's assume you're looking for a target date fund through Vanguard, which I recommend, although there are plenty of other solid companies that offer target date funds. You'll notice that Vanguard offers funds with names like Target Retirement 2040, Target Retirement 2045, and Target Retirement 2050. So what's the difference here? Well, the main difference among these funds is how they're allocated. The larger the number, which represents the year you'll retire, the more equities, also known as stocks, that the fund has. To find the right fund, all you need to know is choose the year you're likely to retire. If, like most people, you're thinking about age 65, look up the fund that's closest to that year for you. For example, 2050. You can also search for Choosing Vanguard Target Date Fund. Like most target date funds, these funds have very low fees. And best of all, they automatically reallocate over time so you don't have to worry about rebalancing, which is buying and selling to maintain your target asset allocation. In short, they do all the hard work for you. All you have to do is contribute as much as possible. Now, a few notes you want to keep in mind as you research these funds. Some companies call them target date funds, while others call them target retirement or life cycle funds. They're all the same thing. Some companies require you to invest a minimum amount, usually $1,000 to $3,000, but that fee can often be waived if you agree to automatic investing, which you should. Finally, you can choose any target date fund depending on your age and risk tolerance. So if you're 25 and for some reason pretty risk averse, you can pick a fund designed for someone older, which will give you a more conservative asset allocation. Buying into your target date fund. Now that you've identified a target date fund to invest in, actually buying it is pretty easy. Log into your Roth IRA, which you opened in Chapter 3. Your login information will be handy if you use a tool like I suggested to track all your logins and passwords. You'll need to have at least enough cash in your Roth IRA to cover the minimum investment of the fund, which is usually between $1,000 and $3,000. Again, some companies waive the minimums if you set up automatic investments every month, which you should. But some, like Vanguard, won't waive the fees no matter what. If you really want a fund that requires a minimum investment and you don't have the money yet, no problem. Save up the necessary amount using a sub-savings account. Now, once you have enough money in the account, type in the ticker symbol for your target date fund. It will look something like VFINX. If you don't know it, you can search for it right from your account. Then, you click Buy. Voila! With each fund you buy, you'll be able to set up automatic contributions so you don't have to contribute manually each month. Jenna Christensen, who's 26 years old, wrote, Since reading IWT, I have probably saved and earned at least $70,000 plus over the past four years. 
This was accomplished by reading the 401k and Roth IRA sections and investing in target date funds. The rule of 72. The rule of 72 is a fast trick you can do to figure out how long it will take you to double your money. Here's how it works. Divide the number 72 by the return rate you're getting and you'll have the number of years you must invest in order to double your money. For the math geeks out there among us, here's the equation. 72 divided by return rate equals number of years. For example, if you're getting a 10% return rate from an index fund, it would take you a little more than 7 years, that's 72 divided by 10, to double your money. In other words, if you invested $5,000 today and you let it sit there earning a 10% return, you'd have $10,000 in about 7 years. The magical part is that it doubles from there too. Of course, you could accumulate even more using the power of compounding by adding more every month. As a good rule of thumb, you should assume an 8% return. This small investing mistake costs her $9,000. An IWT reader wrote me about a conversation she had with her friend. The friend mentioned she'd been contributing to her Roth IRA for almost 10 years. And then she sent me this email describing the conversation. IWT reader, 10 years, wow, that's great. Friend, yeah, but it's barely increased at all. My IWT reader had a weird feeling in her stomach. IWT reader, um, you know you have to buy the funds, right? It's not enough to just transfer the money into an IRA. You have to choose the allocation. Friend, what? This reader then wrote me in all caps, Ramit, my friend has been putting money into a Roth for 10 years and never selected funds. It's a glorified savings account. She missed 10 years of investment growth with compound interest. I don't know if I'm more angry or sad. Do you see what's happening here? Her friend opened a Roth IRA, just like you did in Chapter 3, and even transferred the money over, but never took the final step, making sure that the money got invested. It's funny, very few experts are ever crystal clear in telling you that you need to actually invest your money once you send it over to your Roth IRA. And the worst part, the $3,000 her friend invested could have been worth more than $12,000. That's $9,000 in effortless money. And because it's a Roth, those earnings would have been tax-free. You know I had to ask how her friend felt when she learned the truth. The friend said, I feel kind of cheated. I could have been earning more money for all these years, yet no one ever told me about this important step. Guys, this is why I started writing about money. This woman went out of her way to get educated. She went as far as opening up a Roth IRA and even contributed thousands of dollars. But because she didn't understand the tiny technical features of this retirement account, she lost out on $9,000 of tax-free earnings. Now, should she take some responsibility for not knowing exactly how a Roth works? Yes, of course. But I have to tell you, it shouldn't be this hard. You shouldn't have to be a financial expert to have your money just do the right thing. Just like I shouldn't have to understand how a carburetor works to drive my car. A Roth IRA is just an account. Once your money is in there, you have to start investing in different funds to see your money grow. So do me a favor. Share this information with someone you know who's just getting started investing. We could literally help them earn thousands of dollars over the years. So you want to do it on your own. 
Okay, you aren't satisfied with one target date fund, and you want to pick your own index funds to construct your portfolio in your Roth IRA. First, just a question. Are you sure? If you're looking for one investment that gets you 85% of the way there, which you won't have to monitor, you won't have to rebalance, you won't even have to pay attention to, then just use a target date fund from the previous section. Can you tell that I'm a big target date fan? Remember, most people who try to manage their own portfolios fail at even matching the market. They fail because they sell at the first sign of trouble or because they buy and sell too frequently, thereby diminishing their returns with taxes and trading fees. The result is tens of thousands of dollars lost over a lifetime. Plus, if you buy individual index funds, you'll have to rebalance every year to make sure your asset allocation is still where you want it to be. Target date funds do this for you, so if you just want an easy way to invest, use one. But if you want more control over your investments and you just know that you're disciplined enough to withstand market dips and to take the time to rebalance your asset allocation at least once a year, then, and only then, choosing your own portfolio of index funds might be the right choice for you. All right, let's do this. If you've listened this far, I guess my warnings didn't dissuade you from building your own portfolio. If I can't scare you, I guess I might as well help you. As we discussed earlier, the key to constructing a portfolio is not picking killer stocks. It's actually figuring out a balanced asset allocation that will let you ride out storms and slowly grow, over time, to gargantuan proportions. To illustrate how to allocate and diversify your portfolio, we're going to use David Swenson's recommendation as a model. Swenson is pretty much the Beyonce of money management. He runs Yale's fabled endowment, and for more than 30 years, he's generated an astonishing 13.5% annualized return, whereas most managers can't even beat 8%. That means he's almost doubled Yale's money every five years from 1985 to today. Best of all, Swenson is a genuinely good guy. He could be making hundreds of millions each year running his own fund on Wall Street, but he chooses to stay at Yale because he loves academia. As he said, when I see colleagues of mine leave universities to do essentially the same thing they were doing but to get paid more, I'm disappointed because there's a sense of mission. I love this guy. Swenson suggests allocating your money in the following way. 30% domestic equities. That means U.S. stock funds, including small, mid, and large cap stocks. 15% developed world international equities. These are funds from developed foreign countries, including the United Kingdom, Germany, and France. 5% emerging market equities. Funds from developing foreign countries, such as China, India, and Brazil. These are riskier than developed world equities, so don't go off buying these to fill 95% of your portfolio. 20%. Real Estate Investment Trusts, also known as REITs. REITs invest in mortgages and residential and commercial real estate, both domestically and internationally. 15% Government Bonds, fixed interest U.S. securities, which provide predictable income and balance risk in your portfolio. As an asset class, remember that bonds generally return less than stocks. And finally, 15% Treasury Inflation-Protected Securities, also known as TIPS, these treasury notes protect against inflation. Eventually, you'll want to own these, but they'd be the last ones I'd get after investing in all the better returning options first. 
A significant amount of math went into Swenson's allocation, but the most important takeaway is that no single choice represents an overwhelming part of the portfolio. As we know, lower risk generally equals lower reward. But the coolest thing about asset allocation is that you can actually reduce your risk while maintaining an equivalent return. Swenson's theories are great, but how do we make them real? And how do we pick funds that match his suggestions? Well, the answer is by picking a portfolio of low-cost funds. That's how. Choosing your own index funds means you'll need to dig around and identify the best index funds for you. I always start researching at the most popular companies, Vanguard, Schwab, and T. Rowe Price. So check out their websites. When you visit these websites, you'll be able to research their funds to make sure they're low cost and meet your asset allocation goals. The first thing you want to do in picking funds is to minimize fees. Look for the management fees or expense ratios to be low, around 0.2%, and you'll be fine. Most of the index funds at Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, and Fidelity offer excellent value. Remember, expense ratios are one of the few things you can control, and higher fees cost you dearly. That money just goes straight to Wall Street's pocket. Second, you want to make sure the fund fits into your asset allocation. After all, the reason you're choosing your own index funds is to have more control over your investments. Use David Swenson's model as a baseline and tweak as necessary if you want to exclude certain funds or prioritize which are important for you. For example, if you have limited money and you're in your 20s, you probably want to buy the stock funds first so you can get their compounding power, whereas you can wait until you're older and have more money to buy the bond funds to mitigate your risk. In other words, when you look for various funds, make sure you're being strategic about your domestic equities, international equities, bonds, and all the rest. You cannot just pick random funds and expect to have a balanced asset allocation. To analyze your current portfolio, log into your investment account and use their tools. For example, I log into Vanguard and I can see what percentage of my portfolio is in equities versus bonds or international versus domestic. You can do the same for any fund you're considering. And every major investment company offers this. If it doesn't, you can use the online site Personal Capital. This is a great way to drill into your asset allocation and make sure your funds are well diversified. Third, note that you should absolutely look at how well the fund has returned over the last 10 or 15 years, but remember that, as they say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. To make this a little easier, most websites will have something called a fund screener available. This fund screener will let you add search filters, such as international index funds with an expense ratio of less than 0.75%, to find funds that fit your criteria. I know this is starting to sound complicated. That's the point. This isn't simple. Creating your portfolio takes significant research. As an example of what you might end up with, here's a sample portfolio made of all Vanguard funds. On the stock or equities side, 30% might be in the total market index slash equities. That's VTSMX. 20% might be in the total international stock index slash equities. That's VGTSX. And 20% might be in the REIT index slash equities, which is VGSIX. Now on the bond part of the portfolio, 5% might be in short-term treasury index fund. That's VSBSX. 5% might be in the intermediate term treasury index fund, VSIGX. 
5% in the Vanguard Short-Term Treasury Index Fund, VSBSX, and 15% in Short-Term Inflation-Protected Securities Index Fund, VTAPX. These are just a few of the literally thousands of index funds that exist. You can be flexible with the funds. If you want to be more or less aggressive, you can change the allocation to match your risk tolerance. For example, if you look at those funds and you say, man, I'll never get around to owning seven funds, then just be realistic with yourself. Maybe you want to buy the stock funds, but maybe just one bond fund for now. Maybe you don't need to think about treasury inflation-protected securities yet. Pick the number of funds that will let you get started, realizing that you can adjust it later on to get a balanced asset allocation. Spend time identifying the funds that will help you build a full, balanced asset allocation over time. You don't need to get all seven funds I listed. Even one is better than nothing. But you should have a list of funds that you'll eventually buy to round out your allocation. Keep it manageable. Question, how many funds should I invest in? Answer, if you're wondering how many funds you should own, I'd encourage you to keep it simple. Ideally, you should have just one, which is a target date fund. But if you're picking your own index funds, as a general guideline, you can create a great asset allocation using anywhere from three to seven funds. That would cover domestic equities, international equities, real estate investment trusts, and perhaps a small allocation to treasury bonds. Remember, the goal isn't to be exhaustive and to own every single aspect of the market. It's to create an effective asset allocation and move on with your life. Dollar cost averaging, investing slowly over time. When I want to sound smart and intimidate people, I calmly look at them, chew on a muffin for a few seconds, and then throw it against the wall and scream, do you dollar cost average? People are often so impressed that they slowly inch away, then whisper to people around them. I can only guess that they're discussing how suave and knowledgeable I am. Dollar cost averaging is a phrase that refers to investing regular amounts over time, rather than investing all your money in a fund at once. Now, why would you do this? Well, imagine you invest $10,000 tomorrow and the stock drops 20%. At $8,000, it will need to increase 25%, not 20%, to get back to $10,000. By investing at regular intervals over time, you hedge against drops in price. And if your fund does drop, you'll pick up shares at a discount price. In other words, by investing over time, you don't try to time the market. You use time to your advantage. This is the essence of automatic investing, which lets you consistently invest in a fund so you don't have to guess when the market is going up or down. In Chapter 5, we covered your automatic infrastructure. To set up automatic investing, configure your accounts to automatically pull a set amount of money from your checking account each month. Remember, if you set it up, most funds will waive transaction fees. But here's an interesting question. If you have a pile of money to invest, what's the better option? Should you dollar cost average it or should you invest the entire lump sum all at once? The answer might surprise you. Vanguard research found that lump sum investing actually beats dollar cost averaging two thirds of the time. Because the market tends to go up and stocks and bonds tend to outperform cash, Investing all at once produces higher returns in most situations. But, and there are several buts, 
This isn't true if the market is going down. Of course, nobody can predict where the market will go, especially in the short term. And investing isn't just about math, but about the very real effects of your emotions on your investing behavior. In short, most of us already dollar-cost average since we take part of our monthly paycheck and invest it. But if you have a lump sum of money, most of the time you'll get better returns by investing it all at once. Buying into individual index funds. Once you've got a list of index funds that you want to own in your portfolio, usually three to seven funds, start buying them one by one. If you can afford to buy into all the funds at once, go for it. But a lot of people can't do this since the minimum for each fund might be between $1,000 and $3,000. Just like with a target date fund, you want to set a savings goal to accumulate enough to pay for the minimum of the first fund. Then you'll buy into that fund, continue investing a small amount in it, and set a new savings goal to get the next fund. Investing isn't a race. You don't need a perfect asset allocation tomorrow. So here's how to handle buying multiple index funds over time. Let's say you check your conscious spending plan from Chapter 4, and it allows you to invest $500 a month after contributing to your 401k. Well, assuming all your funds have a $1,000 minimum, you'd set a savings goal of $1,000 for index fund 1 and save for 2 months. Once you've accumulated enough to cover the minimum, transfer that $1,000 from saving to your investing account and buy the fund. Now, set up a contribution of $100 a month to the fund you just bought, and then take the remaining $400 a month that you set aside for investing. Remember, that's $500 total minus the $100 that you're currently investing in index fund 1 and start another savings goal towards index fund 2. Once you've saved enough, buy index fund 2. Repeat this process as necessary. Sure, it may take a few years to get to the point where you own all the index funds you need, but remember, you're taking a 40 or 50 year outlook on investing. It's not about the short term. This is hard, and this is the cost of constructing your own perfect portfolio. Yet another reason why I love target date funds instead of individual index funds. Note, once you own all the funds you need, you can split the money across funds according to your asset allocation. But don't just split it evenly. Remember, your asset allocation determines how much money you invest in different areas. If you have $250 a month to invest and you buy seven index funds, the average person, who knows nothing, which is most people, will split the money seven ways and send 35 bucks to each. That's wrong! Don't do that. Depending on your asset allocation, you'll send more money or less money to various funds. You can use this calculation. Your total amount of monthly investing money times your percentage of asset allocation for a particular investment equals the amount you'll invest there. I'll give you an example. If you're investing $1,000 a month and your Swenson allocation recommends 30% for domestic equities, then you would calculate $1,000 times 0.3 equals 300 bucks, and you would put $300 towards your domestic equity fund. Repeat for all the other funds in your portfolio. Finally, if you opt for investing in your own index fund, you'll have to rebalance about once a year, which will help keep your funds in line with your target asset allocation. I'll cover that in the next chapter. What about other kinds of investments? There are many different investments besides stocks, bonds, and index and target date funds. You can invest in precious metals, 
real estate, private startups, cryptocurrency, or even art. Just don't expect very good returns. And despite all my dire warnings, you can also buy a couple of individual stocks and companies if you really want to. Real estate. For most Americans, their home is their biggest investment. And yet, as investments go, your primary residence is not a very good one for individual investors. Why? Because the returns are generally poor, especially when you factor in costs like maintenance and property taxes, which renters don't pay for, but homeowners do. Now, I'll cover real estate a lot more in Chapter 9, but in general, most people confuse their house with an investment that they buy and sell for profit. Think about it. Who sells their house for profit and keeps the money? If your parents ever sold their house, did they move into a smaller house and enjoy the rest of that money? No, they rolled it over to a down payment for their next, probably more expensive house. You want to keep each part of your portfolio balanced so no one area overshadows the rest. Now, if you're spending $2,000 a month on your mortgage and you don't have enough left over to diversify into other areas, that's not a balanced portfolio. If you do buy real estate, regardless of whether it's to live in or to invest in, be sure to keep funding the rest of your investment areas, whether that's a target date fund or your own portfolio of index funds. Art. Art advisors report annual returns for the index of fine art sales to be around 10%. However, as research done by Stanford analysts in 2013 found, quote, the returns of fine art have been significantly overestimated and the risk underestimated. They found that the real annual return of art over the past four decades is closer to 6.5% versus the 10% that's commonly claimed. The main reason for this overestimation is due to selection bias, in which the repeat sale of popular pieces isn't taken into account. Also, by choosing particular art pieces as investments, you're essentially doing the same thing as trying to predict winning stocks. And after listening to Chapter 6, you already know how hard that is to do. In aggregate, art investments may be quite profitable, but the trick is choosing which individual pieces will appreciate. And as you can imagine, that isn't easy. I want to show you how hard it is to select art as an investment. For that, we turn to the Wall Street Journal, which wrote about John Maynard Keynes's massive art collection. In 2018 dollars, he spent $840,000 to amass an art collection that's now worth $99 million. Now that works out to 10.9% per year, an excellent return, except for one thing. Two pieces of art account for half the value of the collection. Just think about that. One of the world's best art collectors carefully bought 135 pieces and just two generated half the value of the entire collection. Could you predict which two would be worth that much? Well, for most people, the answer is no. High risk, high potential for reward investments. Life isn't just about target date funds and index funds. Lots of people understand that logically they should create a well-diversified portfolio of low-cost funds. But a lot of people also want to have some fun investing. My take on this is, if you feel this way, sure, use a small part of your portfolio for high-risk investing. But treat it as fun money, not as money that you need. 
I set aside about 10% of my portfolio for fund money, which includes particular stocks that I like, know, and use, companies like Amazon that focus on customer service, sector funds that let me focus on particular industries, like for me, healthcare, and even angel investing, which is personal investing for private, ultra-early stage companies. All of these are very high-risk investments, and they're funded by just-for-fun money that I can afford to lose. Still, there is potential for great returns. If you have the rest of your portfolio set up and you still have money left over, be smart about it. But feel free to take 5-10% to of your investable money and put it in what you want. My counterintuitive $297,754 lesson. When you were 15 years old, a lot of your dads were showing you how to drive or showing you how to use a razor or throwing you a quinceanera. My dad told me to open a Roth IRA. A 15-year-old is too young to open a Roth IRA, so my dad and I opened a custodial account together at E-Trade. I had a few thousand bucks in there from some high school jobs that I'd worked at, like a pizza maker, a soccer referee, and a sales guy for an internet company, so I started looking around for what to invest in. Now, for little gangster Ramit, this was about as exciting as it got. So I started doing my research, which consisted of looking up which stocks went really high and low. Because I thought, higher risk equals higher reward. And I'm young, so I can stand high risk, so I get high reward. That's about the extent of how deep my analytical rigor went. God, I hate myself. I also restricted it to tech. Why? Because I understand technology. At least that's what I thought. I read magazines like The Industry Standard, which breathlessly hyped different companies as that magazine swelled to hundreds of pages during the dot-com boom, only to go bankrupt itself. And back then, of course, I thought investing meant picking individual stocks, so I ended up buying three stocks. I bought stock in a company called JDS Uniphase. I still remember the ticker, JDSU, which was an optical communications company. Result? The stock went to zero. I bought stock in a company called Excite, an early search engine, which was renamed Excite at Home after being acquired. It too went bankrupt. And then I bought roughly $11,000 in a little company called Amazon.com. My investment of a few thousand bucks turned into $297,754. Whoa! I should be proud of myself, right? Wrong. It might seem like I won, but you can learn a lot of counterintuitive lessons from this example. What are the lessons here? Well, the superficial lesson is, oh, you're so smart for picking Amazon. Wrong again. The real lesson is that that is exactly the wrong thing to take away. If that's your reaction, please listen carefully. It's important to know why you win and why you lose. I happened to win with this Amazon investment, but it wasn't because I was a good investor. Pure and simple, it was luck. It was a freakish, once-in-a-generation winner. Let's talk about the next lesson. The superficial lesson was if you pick the next Amazon, you'll be rich. The real lesson, though, is investing isn't about picking individual stocks. Research shows that even veteran portfolio managers will, on average, fail to beat the market. I could have picked another 100 stocks, and statistically, I would never have beaten the market. This was pure luck. I've actually made much more money on long-term, low-cost investing. And a third superficial lesson. 
You might think getting the right stock matters a lot, but the real lesson is getting started early mattered even more. I was extremely lucky to have a dad who pushed me to start investing early. Now, if you had the same, that's awesome. But let's say you didn't grow up with parents who knew a lot about money. Or until recently, you thought the only way to invest was to pick stocks. I hear you. We all start from different places in life. Look, my dad didn't teach me how to deadlift and engage my core. We all start with the cards we're dealt with. But you've listened to this book. Now you can start investing aggressively. What about crypto? You know, I thought you only find mindless, roving hordes in zombie movies until I met crypto investors. By the way, I use that term investors loosely since the majority of cryptocurrency fanboys have no other investments. They are investors in the same way that I am a mermaid because I can swim. The next time you hear someone ranting and raving about why crypto is the future, just ask them this simple, devastating question. Besides crypto, what does the rest of your portfolio look like? Their answer will instantly reveal that they are speculators, not investors, because they almost never have a diversified portfolio. Here are three answers that you're going to get. LOL, I don't invest in fiat currency. Traditional investments are so boring. You don't understand blockchain. These answers are contrarian, that's for sure. The only catch with being a contrarian is you actually have to be right. When you get one contrarian, they just sound a little crazy. Put two of them in the same room together, though, and suddenly you're witnessing a convention of people with all the hallmarks of brain-dead speculators. These people are almost always young, libertarian, and disaffected. You're not seeing a lot of people with successful careers spending four hours a day posting HODL, which is crypto investors' take on the word hold from buy and hold, on social media. See for yourself. Go to bitcoin.reddit.com. I got to tell you, though, gets a little quiet on that subreddit when crypto investments drop 80%. Listen, I have no problem with alternative investments when they are part of an overall portfolio. I have a real problem with mob mentalities around money-making ideas that then get rationalized and twisted from currency to investments to scathing short-sighted criticisms of worldwide currency. To make this easy, I decided to create Ramit's Guide to Understanding Crypto as an Investment. They say, Cryptocurrency is a form of currency that you can use to pay for various goods. The reality? Very few merchants accept cryptocurrency. Also, one thing people kind of seem to like is their currency being stable, meaning $1 is worth $1. What happens when your cryptocurrency swings over 25% in one week? That's right, people tend not to spend it because your TV might be 25% cheaper next week. They say cryptocurrency allows people to use cryptography and decentralization to remain anonymous. Reality, this is true, and there are some really valid reasons for people to purchase anonymously. However, for now, crypto largely gets used to buy drugs. They say it's better than fiat currency. Reality, if you spend more than three minutes talking about crypto with a fanatic, excuse me, fan, they will surely bring up the argument of fiat currency. This quickly progresses to referencing Nixon's 1971 decoupling from the gold standard, followed by money isn't real. I just stare at them blinking. They say it's not about Bitcoin, it's about blockchain. Reality Bitcoin is one example of a cryptocurrency using blockchain technology, 
which uses cryptography and a decentralized architecture. And I have to say, the technology is legitimately impressive. It's also used by fans to distract from the constant failings of the actual usage, like Bitcoin and the thousands of other applications. In one hilarious study, 80% of initial coin offerings, ICO, were, quote, identified as scams. Fans ignore these and instead point to the blockchain as the panacea for all societal ills. Hungry? Blockchain will solve that. Need to walk your dog? What about using blockchain? Hey, I need to change my underwear. Got blockchain? They say, well, crypto is an amazing investment. Reality. Investment returns in Bitcoin increased hugely in 2017. From January to June, it had increased by 240% compared to 9% for the S&P 500. Hard to argue against that. But irregular returns are a larger problem than most people realize. In just three months, Bitcoin soared over 340% and then dropped like a rock. Just like in any other type of high-risk gambling, you get addicted to the highs, but when it goes down, guess what happens? You begin hiding your losses and not talking about them. And true to form, that's exactly what we saw. The number of people who searched for Bitcoin soared at the same time its price did. And of course, once the price dropped, people stopped talking about Bitcoin as an investment. In crypto, you see the same signs of gambling and cult-like behavior. Questioning anything is verboten and harshly punished. Engaging in increasingly risky behavior, like borrowing money to, quote, invest in crypto. Whether prices increase or decrease, explaining it through the lens of why crypto will eventually replace all currency. Making increasingly irrational claims, such as disrupting fiat currency. Moving goalposts. It's a currency. No, it's an investment. No, we're here to change the world. Look, if you want to invest in crypto, be my guest. As I said, once you have a solid portfolio in place, I encourage you to invest 5 to 10% in something fun. Just make sure you have a fully functioning portfolio first, meaning you've completed the ladder of investing, you have six months of emergency funds, and you limit your exposure by periodically rebalancing. Of course, if you had a question about crypto in the first place, you're not even listening to me anymore. You're already on some Bitcoin forum chanting, Fiat! Fiat! Why am I even recording this? Action Steps, Week 6 Number 1. Figure out your investing style. Should take about 30 minutes. Decide whether you want the simple investment options of a target date fund or the increased control and complexity of index funds. I recommend a target date fund as the 85% solution. Number 2. Research your investments. This will take you between 3 hours and a week. If you've decided on a target date fund, research the funds from Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, and Schwab. This can take a few hours. If you're constructing your own portfolio, it'll take you more time and more money to meet the minimums of each fund. If that's the case, use the Swenson model as a basic template and prioritize which funds you'll buy today and which ones you'll get later. Once you decide on an asset allocation, research funds using a fund screener. Number three, Buy your funds, and this can take you between an hour and a week. Buying a target date fund is easy. First, transfer the money to your investment account. For 401ks, you should already be directing money from each paycheck into your account. For Roth IRAs, this money should be waiting in your savings account from Chapter 5. 
If you don't have cash lying around to invest, set a savings goal and wait until you have enough to invest in your first fund. Once the money's ready and it's been transferred over to your investment account, log into the account, enter the ticker symbol, and you're finished. If you're buying individual index funds, you'll usually need to buy one at a time and set up savings accounts for the others. Yes, you are now an investor. And not only that, you've reached the end of the six-week program. You've optimized your credit cards and bank accounts, and you've started investing. And even better, you've tied your system together so it works automatically with hardly any effort on your part. Now, there is just a little bit more. In the next chapter, we'll focus on how to maintain and grow your investments. Then, in the final chapter, I'll address all the random questions you have about money and life in general. But the truth is, by making it all the way through this chapter, you've already done the hard work.